Greetings, fellow investors. I'm Matthew Cochran, a lead advisor at Seven Investing, where it is our mission to empower you to invest in your future. We do that by providing monthly stock recommendations to our premium members and educational content that is freely available to everyone. Listeners, today I am very excited to introduce Perth Toll and welcome her back to the show. Perth is the founder of Life and Liberty Indexes. It is the home of the Freedom 100 Emerging Markets ETF, ticker FRDM, a first-of-its-kind strategy that uses personal and economic freedom metrics as factors in its investment process. Perth was a private wealth advisor at Fidelity Investments in Los Angeles and Houston. Prior to Fidelity, Perth lived and worked in Beijing and Hong Kong, where her observations led her to explore the relationship between freedom and markets. We had Perth on the show a little more than a year ago. And since that interview, I believe her strategy has only been validated more. Well, we're going to get into that. I can't wait to talk to her again. So let's get to it. Perth, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's great to be back. Of course. Um, Perth, let's just start with this. We, I'm not sure when this show is going to come out, but we're recording on February 24th, 2023. Do you know what uh do you know what this is the anniversary of? Of course. So it's the anniversary of Russia invading Ukraine last year. That's correct. So one year ago today is the day that Russia invaded Ukraine. And while that certainly came with uh many concerns and global concerns for the world and uh, horrible human tragedies, uh one uh you know down the stream effect of it was that and in the preceding weeks following that, there was a lot of emerging market ETFs that were exposed to Russia, and they had a lot of headaches with this. I mean, these are just clips of headlines that appeared in the weeks following the invasion, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, if you're just listening on the podcast, but like, you know, uh, just reading some of the headlines, emerging markets ETFs are in uncharted waters with Russian stock trading on pause. Your portfolio might be more exposed to Russia than you'd like. Wall Street fund giants face headache as indexes dump Russia. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, about a month after the invasion, uh, you know, we had the, the 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 headline emerging market ETF swing from net asset values as Russian securities valued at zero, which basically was MSCI's decision to remove Russian securities from its emerging markets indexes at a price of zero. Uh, Perth, you run an emerging markets ETF. Uh, did you have these problems with your ETF? We did not. We did not have any exposure to Russia, China, or other autocracies that are heavily um, exposed in the emerging markets indexes that you're talking about. So um, we we were fortunate in that we never were exposed to, to those countries. Now, but so so why don't you tell us why that is? Why don't you have exposure to Russia? Because uh, you know, it, it, I think it was about a three to four percent, uh, you know, an emerging market index, like, you know, three percent, three to four percent of that was exposed to Russia. Yeah. And that that's that's a crazy situation that happened. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, so, so you know, didn't see it coming. But uh, autocracy risk is real and it was always there. Um, people, I think, just chose to ignore it because most of us that work on Wall Street, are in you know financial centers in the world such as you know New York, London, Hong Kong, places that maybe 
aren't as exposed to the risks that everyday people experience in emerging markets, especially. So the emerging markets universe is just full of autocracies. It's by nature companies, I mean, countries that are either autocracies or coming out of autocracies. Um, there's a huge divergence in freedom levels in the emerging market countries. You have the very free countries like Taiwan, South Korea, Chile, Poland, and they have the very unfree countries like China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Turkey, so forth. So it's just a huge divergence in freedom levels. So when I was an advisor at Fidelity, um, I had a lot of clients that wanted to invest in China, but didn't know, you know what was actually going on on the ground there, um, kind of just blindly went in. And then I have a lot of clients who came from these other countries. For example, I had a Russian client who said to me, I don't want any exposure to Russia because it's like funding terrorism. And look how prescient that is now um, in light of today. And, and in fact, it's funny that you, you bring this up because today, you know, even now, a lot of funds, I think Amundi in Europe just delisted some of their Russian ETFs. So, so we're still dealing with the repercussions of this in the ETF space um, around the world. And so what we wanted to do is create a way for investors to get emerging markets exposure, broad emerging markets, diversified exposure without those autocracies, but also to give them a higher exposure to the freer countries, because we believe that the freer markets will outperform in the long run because they have you know, more sustainable growth instead of debt-driven, state-mandated growth. Um, they have faster recoveries from drawdowns. And we got to see that in live performance in the second half of 2020, where the freer emerging markets outperformed you know, broad emerging markets, it outperformed emerging markets ESG, and it outperformed even emerging markets ex-China. So it's not just a China story. Um, and the freer markets, they tend to allocate their capital more efficiently. So it's not one central planner telling you how to allocate capital, it's actually people on the ground, you know, deciding how best to add value. And so we believe that the freer markets will in the long run outperform and we don't wanna fund autocracies. So what we did is instead of market capitalization weighting, which is the standard weighting mechanism in indexes and in the emerging markets gives you a very high uh, autocracy concentration. So instead of that, we do freedom weighting and we weight according to a country's level of freedom. So we look at both personal and economic freedoms, and we get these data from third-party think tanks like the Cato Institute and the Fraser Institute. So we're gonna pick up on that thread in a minute, uh, but I wanted to start our conversation there by highlighting uh, the long-tail risk that maybe some investors overlook since we've basically lived in a time of relative peace and prosperity. Uh, you know, and in our U.S. bubble, especially for U.S. investors, where we're just so used to the rule of law and the protection that gives us, we might forget that not the whole world enjoys freedom like we do in the U.S. Uh, sure. But I do want to pivot here and, and let's let's just go back a little bit. Let's start at more a basic level. When we talk about an emerging market, what, what are we talking about exactly? What, what are we talking about when we say emerging markets? What is an emerging market? Yeah, so an emerging market is typically a less developed kind of, if you think about third world um, country 
uh, again, we we don't we don't determine these classifications. The country classifications in the indexing world is determined by the big indexers like MSCI and FTSE, mostly MSCI. So 95% of the world's institutions benchmark to MSCI indices. And so MSCI um, has country classifications for each country. There's three main types of country classifications for international stocks. <clears throat> There's developed markets, and that's your bigger markets like UK, US, you know, Canada. Japan, Germany, and so forth. So those are countries that are all very developed, have very open capital accounts, very open trade uh, movement of people and capital across borders and so forth. So uh, very reliable banking systems. So it's, it's the countries that are already pretty free. So if we do freedom weighting in developed markets, it would add very little value because all of those, those countries are very free and homogenous in their freedom levels. And then you have the emerging markets. So emerging markets are countries like China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Brazil. Um, I think people used to use the BRIC acronym for this, which the BRICS acronym is pretty much dead at this point. Uh, there was like no, no cohesive commonality between those countries, except that they were all coming from a very low base. Um, and then there's some very free emerging markets, which some would argue should be developed like Taiwan, South Korea. So those are what are classified as emerging markets. So they're smaller than developed markets. Um, and there are some of them, are, they're not as open. They're not as uh, easy to move capital across borders. You know, they're not as, um, <clears throat> they don't have as strong institutions and so forth. So, so those are emerging. And then you have the frontier markets, which are even smaller than the emerging markets. And these are countries like Kuwait, Vietnam. Um, those are some unfree ones. Some very free ones are like Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Uruguay, and so forth. So those are frontier markets. So we are focusing on the emerging market space, which is the middle of the three that I, I just mentioned. Um, and because this is a very large allocation in a lot of investors' portfolios, and there is such a high divergence in the freedom levels between these countries. Uh, this is a result of some quick Googling, um, but like I believe like emerging markets, uh, the population of emerging markets is about 4.3 billion which is more than 50% of the global population. It's about 50% of the global GDP. Uh, the last decade, I think it's the result of 66% of global GDP growth. But it's only uh, equities in these countries only represent about 15% of the world's like securities market cap. Yeah. U.S. investors like, like ignore these markets too much and at their peril? Yeah, those are some great stats that you just Google there. <laughs> so... So I think this is something that, you know, our friends, Rob Arnott and Meb Faber have always said, is that we are under um, allocated to emerging markets, given their contribution to, to world GDP, given their population growth. Um, and we're talking about the, the, the ones that do have favorable population growth. There are some very large emerging markets like China that have very unfavorable population situations. Um, but given all of that, it is an under allocated asset class, according to you know, if you if you match up those stats that you just mentioned to the actual allocations that that we give them, but yeah, most most U.S. investors I know have between like twelve and twenty percent in the emerging market space. Now we we started off our conversation. Let's like pick it up where we 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 left off. Hopefully, but like you you talked about how the the freedom ETF differs from other emerging market ETFs. But is this like is this is this a moral cause, Perth, or is there like uh, you know will this have a negative impact on investors' returns? 
Yeah, so we have the fortunate uh, situation right now of having almost four years of live ETF history, live fund history to look back on. Um, and then even longer than that for live index history. So what we've seen during that time is extremely stark outperformance um, by the freer emerging market set uh, of countries to, to the broad benchmarks. So, so yeah, as you're showing here, there's... <laughs> There's a, a 20% or, you know, yeah, 20% gap, significant, uh, performance significant gap. Outperform. Yes. Um, and, and that's great to see. And you know what, what we like to be is a, uh, a scorecard for the freer countries. Now, I, I want to I caution here, your investors, do not expect this every year. There are going to be times when, for example, China is 35% of EEM, the other fund that you're showing here, which is the, the benchmark for our fund. Um, and when China outperforms because it's 35% of that fund and 0% in our fund, it will, we will underperform if that happens. And it, you saw in the beginning of 2020 that that is exactly what happened. So there are, if you zoom in on that, periods of underperformance. But if you look at the, since inception history, it is a very stark outperformance story for the emerging markets that are more free. And I think that makes sense but also it's, it's dark because of all the extreme events we saw in the last few years, COVID, the war. Um, this is not something that we would expect every year, although there's always something in emerging markets. <laughs> That's probably <laughs> accurate. Um, yeah. You know, and even more so, so we can talk about your ETFs outperformance, which is, uh, like I just said, I, I believe that is fairly significant uh, performance but even more this and we we talked about this this same chart last year and it just it it blows me away i, I don't know how you can deny this but when you look at a, a country like china which has by all uh, definitions experienced uh economic growth the last few decades um where their uh economic growth has exploded and yet when you look at shareholder returns over that time it doesn't even come close to matching that. Uh, like, do you? I guess. Let me just put the question to you: Why? 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 Why is that? Like, why can't shareholders capture any of this economic growth? Yeah. So this chart is extremely. It's an extremely good illustration. And China is always Exhibit A uh, of what we're talking about because of this. Um, you saw, like you said, very real growth in the last three or four decades in China. I mean, people lifted themselves up out of poverty after the, you know, artificial restraints under under Mao were were removed. So we went from in China went from extremely bad policies under Mao, where tens of millions of people died in famine, to not so bad policies. And that incremental change in economic freedom allowed this tremendous growth in the country and created this kind of economic miracle. Um, but investors were not able to capture any of it. Um, and, and you see that in emerging markets, especially emerging markets like China, because of uh, expropriation, there's, you know, the companies in China, they, the, the ownership structures are very murky and non-transparent, very opaque. Same thing with accounting standards, very opaque, very uh, non-transparent, does not meet international standards. Um, and you don't really know when you invest in China, who that who that investment is benefiting. So we are not sure, you know, who all the owners of 
these Chinese companies are. So if you look up, you know, any Chinese company, look up the ownership, you typically see only 60% of the owners. And so we don't know where the other 40% is. And a lot of times investments in these companies directly benefit, you know, party members or people in favor with the government and their, you know, their friends and other, you know, people, their associates. So one is we don't know where the money goes when we invest in a country that has very poor transparency and poor economic freedom. Um, and the other is these companies in China, they are not free to put their own interests above that of the state. So companies that operate in a way that have to put state interests above the interests of, say, their customers or their shareholders. And, and that They're can change. And that can change at any time too, right? Yeah. I mean, like the state can say, like, now these are our objectives, but then at a at a at a second's notice, right? They can tell video game companies, oh wait, yeah. if you're under this age, you can't play video games except for one hour a day. Or yeah. if you're a Chinese educational company, you can't charge uh, the the market rate of what you could charge for. You're you're nonprofit now. Right. Right. Yeah. So we saw that happen just in the recent past, where companies were restricted from raising capital. They are restricted from conducting their core business activities. They are restricted from making profits. So this is this is a very poor way to capture growth because in, when any of those three things that we just mentioned happen, and they've all happened recently, um, the the company's value basically goes to zero, and it's not recoverable until the government says, "Okay, you can make profits again." Or, you know, it's, it, it, like you said, it is very capricious, and so that capricious government action risk and the just the, the risk of you're subsidizing companies that are doing business in this manner, which it, there's a cost to doing business this way. Um, it causes that, you know, that return to be siphoned off to state actors or other people who are not actually the foreign investors in these companies. Right. It, it's like, to say the least, like shareholder returns is not, uh, it's not, the China government does not care about your shareholder returns. No, As and a, that's something that we realized in the last couple of years. It's not something that we knew before, um, I think, as an investor community. Yeah, no, I think that's accurate. Um, you know, it's I'll say this. It's certainly something I've realized in the last couple of years where I did not realize it before. Um, you know, um, and, and for those, I always forget to do this, but if, if you're listening on the podcast, the chart showed China's GDP growth uh, was over the last few decades, basically 3,300%. And, uh, the, China, the MSCI China index had shown a total shareholder appreciation of a, of 47% in that time. Um, Perth, which is, which is about, which is about 0% on an annual basis. It's, it's, it's between it's, zero it's, and 2%. It's, it's yeah. amazing. It's, it's amazing how paltry those returns are. Yeah. It's uh, literally worse than treasuries. Really, really, really um, bad. Yeah. yeah. Um, China, man, there's a lot we can talk about China, but like, so China, if, if, if you're invested in like an MSCI index or uh, another emerging market index, China is like a huge part of those economic market indices. We've already indicated that the freedom ETF does not hold China. Like how does China rank on the human and economic freedom scores? Pretty poorly. So um, I can look those up, but it's, it's somewhere around 150 out of 162 out of the emerging market uh, country set, it is almost the worst. So it's, it's like the only one that's worse is Saudi Arabia. So you have 
Saudi Arabia at the worst out of the 24 country emerging markets universe, and then China and then Russia. So it's actually Russia ranks higher. So, um, so it's, it's very bad. Um, and that's both personal and economic freedom. So there are countries in the emerging markets country set like, uh, you know, like Saudi Arabia, Qatar, UAE, who rank higher on economic freedom, but very poor on you know, personal freedom. So especially women's freedoms, right? So, so that's, you know, one-sided, but in China, it is two-sided, like it, it ranks poorly across the board. And so, um, especially I would say personal freedom, but, but it's just, it's very, very poor personal and economic freedom on, we, we use a data set that has 83 variables that measure personal and economic freedoms. And I categorize them into three different categories, civil, political, and economic. So civil freedoms are things like terrorism, trafficking, torture, disappearances, women's rights, right? So China has 30 million missing women due to the one child policy. And that's official Chinese think tank estimates. Some out there have it as twice that. That's not recoverable in my lifetime. So that's a huge demographic time bomb that is starting to go off now, exacerbated by COVID and everything else that's going on there. Um, and that's why they they had the, the education companies say, you know, you have to be nonprofits now because the cost of raising a child is high. They're trying to encourage people to have more children due to the lack of population growth due to largely the one child policy. And so, you know, reproductive freedom is a personal freedom. Shareholder rights are an economic freedom. And they're trying to basically fix one by adjusting the other. You can't do that. You know, freedoms are like parts of an automobile. You can't fix a transmission by tearing out the steering wheel. It doesn't work, right? So, um, so that's what's going on there. And so we look at all of these measures of freedom, you know, civil, we discuss political or things like, like freedom of speech, expression, media, assembly, civil procedure, criminal procedure, so on and so forth, judicial independence. And then economic freedoms are things we're more familiar with, like private property rights, rule of law, you know, um, contract enforcement, uh, business practices and regulations, freedom to trade internationally, soundness of the money supply. So all of these things added together, we use the composite country score for each country to derive our country weights. Now, so I, I would say, so economic freedom is, is fairly obvious, right? Why that's important to logistics, sticking to an investing uh, like uh, mindset, like obviously economic freedom is important, but it might not be as obvious why personal freedom is important. Why are both together like needed? Why are both important? So yeah, so, you know, this is why my data providers say, you know, the freedoms are like parts of an automobile. You, you need every part of the automobile to work for it to run. Sorry. Oh my gosh. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, just edit out this part with my cat. Okay. You want me to remove him here? Let me, let me, it's, oh my God. Let me remove no him. Problem. There's another, another cat outside. He's trying to, okay. <laughs> sorry. You're going to have to edit that out. Hope, hope you can do that. <laughs> no problem. Okay. But yeah. So why, why are personal freedoms as important as economic freedoms, because I, I think it's fairly obvious, right, to investors, uh, you know, and strictly speaking in, in, in terms of investor returns that like economic freedoms are important. But why are personal freedoms important to shareholder returns? Yeah, so personal freedoms are part of that rule of law and the, you know, environment in a country in which 
all its citizens dwells, right? So um, right to life, for example, if you don't have life, you can't produce economic returns. So that's important. Um, women's rights, right? If you have 30 million missing women in your country or women who don't have rights, can't get an education, can't drive, can't, can't you know, uh, go out of the country without permission, can't, you know, participate in economic um, activity, then that is half of your basically citizenry that are not going to be productive on an economic standpoint. Um, things like contract enforcement and rule of law, criminal procedures, civil procedures, um, freedom of speech, media, and expression. Those things are important because if you don't have freedom of, for example, freedom of the media, there is no independent verification on any of the data that comes out of companies or governments. Again, China is a shining example. If you don't have, you know, free media every year, the China's, China's, Chinese government will say our GDP was 7%. Every year it, that happens and no one contradicts it. If you contradict it, you're disappeared or, you know, you know, you know so, so it's, 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 um, it's extremely important for all of these types of freedoms to work together to create an environment that incentivizes true productivity and growth. If you don't have one kind of freedom, you essentially can't use the other. It can't be half free. Economic freedom, as you said, is also very important because I, you know, we're in the kind of investing world where we care more about economic freedom, but I also work with activists like uh, our partners at the Human Rights Foundation who focus very little on economic freedom and mostly focus on personal freedom. But I have to remind them, look, if you're, if you don't have the freedom to make a living, you know, this is how the Arab Spring started, right? If you don't have the freedom to provide for your family, unless the government gives you that uh, privilege, you have to be one of the favored few to be able to have, you know, economic kind of um, permission to, to provide for your family, then you don't have freedom. If you depend on the on the government to tell you that you can have a job, that you can have a fruit stand, that you can participate in the economy, then then that is that is not freedom. So you're not free, even though you can, you know, assemble or have freedom of religion or freedom of speech. You know, it, all the freedoms have to work together, like the parts of an automobile. If you don't have a steering wheel, but you have a transmission, the car is still not going to run. And not just. Uh, you know, you give examples of small business owners like fruit stands or uh, yeah. a restaurant or, or something like that. But like in, in China, it was even like Jack Ma, right? The founder of uh, Alibaba, like, uh, you know, like a, like a year ago, it was like, oh, he disappeared and oh, he's under house arrest or oh, it's where, where is Jack Ma? Is he still in control of his company? And, you know, you just had all these rumors come out and and he was you know, in America, um, he would have been closer to being celebrated, like an Elon Musk or, or Jeff Bezos. Exactly. Um, in China, like, um, you know, he, it was like he could seemingly be removed from the the multi-billion dollar company he founded, like at, at a moment's notice. Yeah, so no one is above the law in China. You've had celebrities who are, you know, akin to like Nicole Kidman, like in, in China, Fun Bingbing was disappeared and then, you know, hit with a like, multi-hundred million tax bill. Um, so basically she had to pay a bribe to get out of disappearance. And she just now recently, um, and that was like maybe five, six years ago. And she just now recently did another movie for the first time. Um, you know, right now, uh, Bao Fun, who is 
the he's a tech titan in China. He ha, he was a, he's an investment banker who had his hand in every important tech deal in China in the last whatever however many years, and everyone knows him. He is currently missing. So this is this is headlines right now. Bao Fan is missing in China. His company has been unable to reach him. Nobody knows where he is. So it's it's like Jack Ma before somebody before he's resurfaced right, right. so that's where Balfan is right now i mean this is insane and, and you know there's been reporting by ft that Balfan was moving his fortune to singapore from china at the time of its disappearance so he was already seeing the writing on the wall he was trying to move out and they got him before he moved i mean it's it's insane I, and disappearances like this are one of our metrics so no, you can't conduct business in a way that is benefiting your shareholders if you're concerned about becoming disappeared, if you offend right. the government, right? So, um, so, so yeah, that's, it's, it's, it's obvious when it happens, but before it happens, nobody even thinks of it as a possibility. So when you, when you remove a company like China from your ETF, uh, you're removing a, a company with several high profile uh, companies, high profile tech companies. I mean, you're, yep. you're talking about Alibaba, Tencent, JD.com. I mean, you're talking about like some of the, some of the world's biggest companies. Um, yep. uh, can, can you still have, when you remove a, a country like that, uh, can you still have like sector diversity uh, across, a, you know, from the emerging markets? I know, uh, at least from my my uh, my limited knowledge, that like you know, emerging markets, a lot of them are heavy in financials or um, natural resources, commodity type businesses, energy. But can you still have sector diversity by removing a country like China? Yeah, actually, you get better uh, sector diversity with a freedom weighted approach because the freer countries tend to be the ones with more diversified industries versus just relying on one natural resource, right? So Russia is like, you know, I, I'm sure everyone's heard it's like a, um, it's like a military, it's like a gas station with the military, or I, I forgot what the actual right. phrase was, but it's something like that, where it's, it's just oil and that's it. And, you know, there's no other industry, Saudi Arabia, it's very similar. Um, but with the freer markets, they have more diversification in their industries and they're not just bound to one natural resource. You have countries like Taiwan with no natural resources, right? Yet, if you look at a chart of Taiwan's growth over China's in the last decades, it's five times the, the stock market growth, just looking at the stock market index. So, you know, investors captured five times the growth in Taiwan versus China. Uh, and all everyone talked about in the last, you know, decade was, was China. So yet, you know, as we saw on your chart, they captured no growth there. Um, so, so yeah, you actually get better diversification. Now we don't have as many, we do have a lot in tech, but the kind of tech is different. So we have a lot of semiconductors, right? So we have Taiwan Semiconductor, we have Samsung, we actually have to cap those companies because they take up such a large part of their economies in those countries. So we cap, we have a, a security cap at 8%. So at the time of re rebalance, they have an 8% weight in the index and that's their rebalance maximum rebalance weight. So um so so we do have a lot of kind of the semiconductor type of tech um and not so much the uh some of the, the frankly 
frothier, more bubbly names in the past couple of years. So that actually helped us. So we'll see if it continues to help us. Um, but you do actually get a very, very diversified industry set um, in a freer, freer uh, country exposure. Are there, so we talked a lot about China and Russia. I think those are some of the more obvious names when you're talking about countries that might score low on human and economic freedom scores. Are there any other countries that are um, that 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 are scored particularly low and that investors might not be aware of? Yeah, I think most people are aware of most of the countries that score low now, but Turkey is one that um, has had a lot of trouble lately, and you know, a tragic situation with the with the earthquakes there recently. Um, but they were the only country that has ever triggered our methodology rule that says if a country falls more than five points on the Freedom House scale, then in any given year, then it is kicked out of the index or it's excluded, even though it was previously included. So Turkey triggered that rule in the 2018 rebalance. Because remember, the index existed since 2017. Right. The fund existed since 2019. In 2018, Turkey triggered the Freedom Decline Momentum Rule and was excluded and has never made it back in. And during that time, you see this huge decline. And that's that's to catch these very quick declines in freedom levels. We found that when freedom increases, it happens very gradually, but when it decreases, it can happen very quickly. And so we want to catch that very fast decline before, you know, it's like we, we it's like a stop loss. Gotcha. And so basically it triggered the rule in 2018 never made it back in. And we've seen Turkey just continue to see extreme declines in their freedom levels from that point on. Um, and we were able to, to sidestep that due to the freedom decline momentum rule. How often do you, like in a situation like that, let's talk about Turkey, like how, how, uh, how often are the rankings updated? Is it this an annual thing, a quarterly thing, or is it like live in real time? Uh, you know, how quickly can you rebalance? It is annual. So because we are using third-party data by the Cato Institute and the Fraser Institute, they are also using third-party data from 100 think tanks in their freedom network around the world. So there's two levels of third-party objectivity, but that also causes this kind of, you can't, it's not real-time, right? It is, it is an annual situation. And also it's slower than even some of the other um, data providers out there. So Freedom House, for example, um, is a little faster than Fraser and Cato just because they're they're not a transparent methodology. They're kind of a black box where it's a committee making th these decisions. Gotcha. Also, they don't they don't cover economic freedom, so it's just political freedom basically. Um, and so we wanted a comprehensive data set that covers all freedoms, personal and economic. You know, the economic part being half of the metric, so very important. Um, so. So, but to have this transparent methodology, it does cause a little delay in the data coming in. So it is annual. And so we rebalance annually. But what I have seen is that this, this works that way. So, so, you know, it doesn't have to be real time. And that was one of, my, one of the concerns that was brought up to me uh, when I first created the index by colleagues in the, you know, freedom econometrician kind of community. And they were like, well, Obviously, it's not going to be real time. So, you know, is that going to work? Because stock market reacts in real time. And what we found is that it takes a couple of years, actually, for policies to affect markets. 
Um, and when you have an instant reaction, like with elections, it's often priced wrong. So what we've seen is that, for example, Poland, right, um, elected the PIS government around 2016, and they gained constitutional majority, and they rolled back some of the very important freedoms like like a judicial independence and women's freedoms over the, the next several years. It, it coincided with the Trump years in the US. And um, the year before that happened, or as it was happening, we had a freedom meeting with a lot of these 100 think tanks. The Polish delegate was there and he spoke to me and, I, and he said, hey, um, I know you, you have a lot of Poland in your index. I just wanna tell you, we're about to elect this kind of crazy, super extremist government and they're gonna you know, do some crazy things and it's gonna be bad for you know, these freedom metrics, but it won't show up in the market for several years. And it happened just as he said, 2016, 2017, Pol so 2016, they come into power, 2017, Poland is the top performing emerging market and number one in our index. 2018, they dropped to number four and they've, they've remained at number, number four since then. So it took a couple of years for these policies to show up in the markets or, and show up in the scores. And so that, that has been um, the way that a lot of this has worked out. You know, we in, included Brazil a couple of years back. Um, when India dropped out, Brazil got bumped up, right? So it wasn't Brazil's score, you know, that changed. It was India. But anyway, it, it, it was, they're both very borderline countries. And Brazil... You know, people were concerned about the changes there, you know, with the government as well. Again, took a couple of years for it to affect markets and it's still in the index now. So those are just some examples of, you know, it, it does take a while for actual policies to be enacted on the ground to actually affect um, economic conditions on the ground. Gotcha. So, so until that happens, we don't, we don't make changes. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can see why there would be a, a lagging indicator there. Uh, you, well, you it's, it's, I would say it's still a leading indicator. So freedom okay. is still a leading indicator, but there's a lag in the data from, you know, when we expect a policy change to when it actually affects markets. Gotcha. You're right. You you said that better than I did. Um, <laughs> you mentioned India. Uh, you know, that's often the other. Mm, for lack of a better term, like economic powerhouse, or at least yeah. potential economic powerhouse that people think of when they, when, you know, when investors are talking about emerging markets, uh, you know, I don't think it's happened yet, but I think they're expected to exceed China in population sometime in the next yeah. few years. Um, how does India rank on your, 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 your freedom metrics? It's about it's about in the middle, so it's borderline country uh, between the twenty four countries. It's it's like number thirteen, so um, so it's it's India is a very interesting market for me. I love India. Uh, it was in the index when we first launched the fund in two thousand nineteen, and we have a lot of fans in India of our of our strategy, um, and I think that comes partly from the India China rivalry. Right? So we don't have China, so India likes us. You know that right, type of deal, right. but. Uh, but also, I think India is a high potential market, extremely high, and the the demographics are extremely favorable. They also have some, you know, similar to China, they have a sun preference, which means there is a lot of 
bad things happening to, to baby girls and so forth, just like in China, but it's not as bad and it's not like forced by the government. But the problem that we're encountering in the, the scores with India, we've always encountered problems with their trade score. So their, their freedom to trade has always been lower than other, you know, relatively low uh, than the other, you know, more free included markets because they've had high trade barriers, both tariff and non-tariff trade barriers. Um, so they're a very protectionist country. And, and, and in the ETF world, you see this as well. It's extremely difficult to trade you know, Indian stocks We, you know, and open that account in India. It's, it's extremely difficult. So uh, most in our index has this rule that we only use ADRs in India, right? So uh, right. most indexes will have that rule. And you'll see that because it's very difficult to access those local stocks. Um, so that's economic freedom, but also we've seen in the past several years, and this is how they dropped out of the index. They had increased repression of the Kashmir people, which is a territory that they control. Um, they had more uh, coercion of the media, and we'll talk about that in a second. And they blacked out protests a couple of years ago in places that had uh, they blacked out the internet in places that had protests. Like we're expecting, they were expecting farmers protests that they blacked out the internet. So no one would hear about it. Um, press freedoms recently, they raided the BBC office because there was a documentary done on Modi. Um, this documentary was also banned ac across college campuses, universities, and so forth. Um, so this is extreme coercion of the media and expression. And, you know, this is not something that we expected to see even, you know, in India. Um, and so it, it, it was surprising uh, that it was this blatant, but, you know, things like this caused their score to, to, to go down. Um, <clears throat> and as far as India, like, after we're talking about the, the war when Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, and they've been, you know, they haven't been as clear as the rest of the countries around the world to say, okay, you know, right. we're with Ukraine, you know, we're, we're going to sanction Russia, whereas the rest of the world was very clear. It was a very clear, coordinated effort on the part of the West, all the allies to do so. Um, China, obviously, was, you know, on the other side of that, and India kind of trying to be Switzerland, like, they're, right, right. you know, so yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's been very uh, disheartening uh, what's happening there, but I have huge hopes for India. I love India as a country, as a market. I think it has huge potential. I think much better potential than China. Um, and I don't want to equate, you know, what they're doing with, you know, with, for example, the Kashmir people with what China is doing, for example, with the Uyghurs. No comparison, but still it's, it's, you know, you have to be relatively freer in the, in the, you know, emerging markets universe to be included. And they're currently barely not. So, it's, it's a borderline country. It could be included at any time. Every year I expect it, um, but we haven't seen it yet. Now, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think you said another borderline country that is currently in the index is Chile and was even responsible for like some of your outperformance the last yeah. uh, year or two. But so it might Chile, be, but it might be in danger of not making the index anymore. No, so no, no. So, so, so Chile is not a borderline country. It's okay, I'm a very sorry. high uh, freedom country. <laughs> okay, so, okay. But it is a very uh, small country. So in the in MSCI based 
um, indexes and funds like EEM or IEMG or even VWO, which is a FTSE based, um, it has less than 1% weight typically. But in our index current, you know, it at rebalance time had 18% weight last year, that weight went up to as high as 25. So um, the reason why is that, so, so Chile is interesting in that, you know, freedom kind of the freedom community, especially the economic freedom community looks at Chile and is seeing just a huge risk because um, they recently elected a new government that um, had, that people were concerned would roll back their business-friendly policies that Chile has enjoyed for many years and that led to their prosperity. Um, so this new government has been in power since December of 2021. Over the course of 2022, you know, because they have such a high weight in our index, you know, a lot of our clients, I got a lot of emails about this, you know, we're very concerned. And, um, but, you know, we go by the scores. So, so you know, we follow, it's, it's literally a rules-based, you know, methodology follows the scores. And so we still had a high weight in there. And I said, look, you know, just have to see, you know, how, how it goes. We ha it's a test of their institutions and their institutions tested well last year. Uh, none of the referendums put out to, for, to a vote were voted in. In fact, they were very um, voted out on a very high margin. So Chilean voters came out um, and very adamantly said, we do not want these policies that would be anti-business. You know, we like these pro, you know, business friendly policies. Um, and they came out and voted in droves for that. And I have Chilean friends here in the United States who you know, live, for example, in New York, and they went down to Miami to vote, you know, against these referendums. And so, um, so I think what we saw in Chile is, yeah, they elected, you know, one, the branch of government that was very anti-business. And there are still to this day, a lot of concerns about, can we keep up that economic freedom as the you know beacon of economic freedom in South America in Chile, um, but so far we've seen their strong institutions, um, you know, at play, and they have not enacted any of those policies that are suggested by this government. And we'll gotcha. see how it goes going forward. But typically in the freer emerging markets, um, there are stronger institutions. There's stronger rule of law. There is um, there's the more respect for, you know, individual rights, shareholder rights, and so forth. And that makes them kind of the safe havens in a crisis situation. As far as, again, you know, yeah. No, I was just to say, and again, you said this was in a typical emerging markets index. Chile has is, like is 1%. 1%. And in your index, it's, you know, in the-, in 18%. the in, 18%. And, and, and last year, that added a lot to our returns because Chile has a very diversified commodities exposure. So they're world's top producer of copper, lithium and so forth. And they, um, they strongly outperformed in the inflation trade. And not only that, but this year, year to date, we're seeing strong outperformance in Chile again, partly because ironically of China, because they do a lot of trade with China. And remember, we don't penalize free trade. We actually think the freer the trade, the better, right? So because China had a reopening bounce, Chile benefited from that as much as China did because of that trade. And uh, it's a way of kind of participating in a bounce and even these unfree markets without that direct autocracy risk where the company, you know, the company, you know, the, the government can come in and right. tell the companies, oh, 
you're a nonprofit now. We don't have that risk in Chilean companies. They can choose to do the trade or they can not do the trade, right? They can trade with this country or they can trade right. with another country. So they call the shots. They are free to do what's in the best interest of their shareholders. And as a result, when they do trade with these unfree markets, we can benefit from that trade without direct autocracy risk. We talked about so many negative countries. Uh, I think Chile is a great positive note to yes. end on. Uh, Perth, if people are interested in the Freedom ETF or if they're interested more in following you, uh, where can they find more information? Yeah, so the um, index site is lifeandlibertyindexes.com. The fund site is freedometfs.com. And I am on Twitter at Perth underscore toll. And we'll include those links in our in our podcast notes and in the article on the site accompanying the episode. Perth, thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me. Uh, listeners, again, I'm Matthew Cochran. We're Seven Investing, and we're here to empower you to invest in your future. Have a great day.